This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Phil Bussman, who's the owner of Cherith Farm. And we're going to do something a little different today. Phil is going to take us on a little tour of his farm. Um, Phil, your farm is different from others that, in that it's a CSA, but a lot of people don't know what a CSA is. Can you explain it to them? Sure. A CSA is an acronym that stands for Community Supported Agriculture. It's a concept that actually started in Japan and found its way over to the United States, um, oh, I guess I, about 50 years ago. And feel free to check anything on Google, that I, any facts that I propose to say. But a CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture. And the basic model is that a, gar- a, a homeowner selects a gardener or a farmer and agrees to pay them in advance for vegetables. Um, most vegetables are, are uh, delivered on a basket basis or a share, what they refer to as a share. Um, the shares are prepaid, like I mentioned, and what that means is that the farmer is able to grow crops and plant crops for X amount of shares. Um, in return, the homeowner or the purchaser of the vegetables shares in some of the risk and the rewards of being part of a of a farm itself. Um, the farmer benefits by getting a little bit of dollars up front, but most importantly, he benefits from knowing that any crop that he does grow already has a home. So there are different models on how people frame out their CSA. We at Cheris Farms work on a CSA share of approximately, you pay for eight weeks, over a 10-week period. I like to allow for bi-weeks, B-Y-E weeks, which allows a, uh, a purchaser to be gone for a weekend, for a vacation, or for a wedding, or for a graduation somewhere, and that person doesn't feel like they forfeit their money just because they cannot come 10 or 12 weeks in a row. So That's a great idea. Yeah, some farms will, will set up their procedure to allow for um, like 26 straight weeks, and I think that's being a little unfair to um, consumers in that sense. I'm not sure I can go anywhere 26 straight weeks. Um, but it, I, will, I will say uh, farms that do set it up for a long period allow for other people to come and pick up vegetables in place of the purchaser. Um, I do not like that concept myself because I think it's all about trying to uh, um, get to know your customers and they get to know your farm and where it's from. Um, some guys use that method, allowing friends or relatives to pick up for them as advertising. I'd rather have my customers do my advertising for me in that sense. And I guess that it really gives you, gives you a chance to get to know them, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It sure does, for sure. Uh, in fact, sometimes we get to know each other very, very well, um, and um, it's. Uh, in fact, we actually changed our CSA model a little bit this year because of that. Okay. Um, why is doing a CSA important to you? 
Well, so many people in North Georgia, in our area, have, uh, have the will or the desire to grow vegetables. Unfortunately, with our shaded, um, our shade, our shade cover and our type of ground, it makes it very difficult for people to put in a garden. I am blessed with incredibly good sun and, um, soil that can be improved, uh, with, uh, good back labor and, uh, lots of attention. Well, now, you've made some changes. You mentioned the changes in the way you do your CSA shares, but I noticed on the farm's Facebook page that you also made some big changes in some of your growing. Tell us about that, will you? Well, some of the, the changes in our growing pattern, actually, our, our, our model has changed just a little bit. I recently retired from my job. I'm still working two weeks a month versus four, so it gives me a lot more time to be around. As a result, we've added a few customers. Um, when we added customers, we went from a nice, cozy little relationship with customers on our front porch on a Saturday morning where people could stick around and have coffee and visit, um, sometimes for two or three hours after the pickup time ended. Um, with more customers and with more demands on our time and privacy, that just wasn't going to work. So we actually have spent a lot of time uh, developing our permaculture and our infrastructure this winter um, by remodeling a, uh, a shed that was on our property and converting it into a pickup location. That sounds like a, a good thing. Now, what do you have? You've got uh, things other than vegetables that you have on your farm. What, tell us all what you have there. Okay, well, we raise a, uh, a small flock of sheep. Uh, sheep are great for uh, keeping down uh, the brush and the weeds back in the woods. Um, they're marvelous uh, composters of large um, broccoli and cauliflower. <laughs> um, I actually just tossed over probably 18 cauliflower plants to the sheep this morning. And I only have four of them. And uh, that's pretty much just a pile of uh, roots and, uh, and stubs that are left right now from them. Um, we use the sheep for, you know, you know ground control. We uh, occasionally will harvest the lamb for ourselves, um, but um, uh, they, they uh, and, and then we also harvest the wool, send it to Prince Edward Islands, and it comes back in the form of blankets and uh, yarn. Oh, how nice. So you've got, what, four sheep, did you say? Right, three mother sheep and uh, one baby sheep right now. Uh, oh, yeah, the morning. When people come to visit your farm, can they go and pet the sheep, or are they too wild for that? Um, our sheep are, we like to refer to most of our animals as, as uh, farm animals uh, and not pets. Uh, for one thing, sheep are not cuddly. They don't want to be your friend. Um, it's like a goat. A goat will want to be your buddy for life. Um, goat will find its way to your front porch, um, in the garden shed, in the garden. A sheep, um, our sheep anyway, are very easy keepers. They're very content behind their electric fence. As long as we keep them fed, we never hear from them. Uh, we do have uh, little sheep bells on them to let us know when they're busy, which is about five minutes every two hours. Oh, they're, they're kind of placid then, huh? They're pretty placid, especially when it gets really hot, like it has been this past week and a half. Now, you have chickens too, don't you? How many do you we have? We have a lot of chickens. Right now, I don't know. In fact, I was just walking behind the barn here. Um, looking at the blackberry patch, and I noticed that there's a lot of feather activities, um, which indicates a hawk attack or a um, 
some sort of uh, some sort of assault on our chickens um, last night or early this morning. Oh no! Um, yeah, well, yes, yeah, so it's been a while, and typically we've lost ten or twelve um, chickens a year to hawks, but it's been quite some time. But there's enough feathers here on the ground that indicate um, uh, somebody might be lunch. So anyway, um, oh, I don't know. What, yeah, I don't know what our count is right now. I think we're down to about our. We're down to about 45, um, and we were at a high of about 65 or 70, which was just too much for our property. It's interesting when you think about um, industrial agriculture and corporate ag, um, the density, the stocking densities that can occur in chicken houses or pork, you know, uh, pork factories. Um, I've noticed it on my little farm here. When we get too many, it just creates more problems, more refuse, more manure, um, that becomes harder and harder to deal with in a natural way. Um, with fewer chickens, things pretty much take care of themselves, and um, um, there's, a, there's a lesson to be learned there. Yeah, I at one time had way too many chickens uh, because my neighbor's uncle died and, and his wife didn't want the chickens to be eaten. So I offered to, well, they asked me if I would adopt them, and I did. And I said, well, how many are there? And they said, oh, probably 15 or 20. Well, there were 43 oh, <laughs> when we went over to get them. And I already had, you know, a, a couple dozen of my own. And, Phil, as you know, my, my property is not all that large. And when possible, I like to let my chickens free range. But they, they took everything down to the ground. It was just amazing how quickly they made mincemeat of all the landscape. Yeah. In fact, these actually, uh, last about a year ago, we decided to, to separate our flock and actually contain some of our chickens. They still have a lot of room outside. But they no longer can roam the entire property. Um, my outdoor flock, which is um, interesting, um, roams the entire property. In fact, they make they make daily forays down into the blackberry patch, and then over to the blueberry patch, and then into the raspberry patch, and then out into the garden late at, late late in the afternoon. So um, it's uh, they, they can they can get a hold of you. Well, now how. How's that going to work out? Because you're growing a whole lot of heirloom tomatoes, and my chickens just love tomatoes. They would jump up to reach, you know, four feet, five feet up in the air. Well, that's a good question because some of the heirloom tomatoes I have are probably within 50 feet of the barn right now. Um, we've got a, a pretty good electric fence. Uh, the chickens respect it fairly well, but uh, um, or the taste of one of those heirloom tomatoes might be worth a, uh, a little poke. <laughs> Well, chickens are chickens are really funny. I, I guess if you have never fed them any tomatoes, they might not go after them. But of course, I fed my chickens just as you do, whatever is left over from the garden. You know, that zucchini that was hiding under the bushes or or whatever, and mm-hmm. so they were very much used to it. I also used to have a dog that loved to pick tomatoes and eat them, and oh, she would stand well. up on her hind legs and eat. <clears throat> Now, was you're you're kind of late in life getting into farming. Was this always a dream of yours? It actually was. Um, you know, I was thinking about before we you called this morning or we decided to do this. Uh, one of the books I read when I was a little kid was My Side of the Mountain. Um, about the story of the kid who went, ran off and ran away from home and lived in the Adirondacks and lived in a tree. Um, and I, I often thought, geez, you know. A guy would have it made if he had four acres of land and a little garden spot, chickens and rabbits and 
and uh, and uh, and could feed himself. So I'm not a survivalist by any stretch of the imagination, but I I always have had uh, a dream about having a little farm. I uh, grew up in a farming community with with big farms, and I actually watched the uh, demise of many of those farms with uh, in the '60s um, when our agricultural policies changed in the country, and saw a lot of people lose their farms, and um, yeah. which is very unfortunate. Um, so I've always had it in me to uh, to want to grow a lot of my own food. I just love what it, I love the taste, um, and uh, I love providing it for others and uh, having the ability to grow it for others. I almost feel it's an obligation to uh, to provide some in some form. So that's wonderful. I always like to give food away because you know even if people can go and buy it, because I think it's just one of those community building things. Um, even you know, and I. On occasion, I've sold a little bit of produce here and there and eggs, but, but none anymore. We're going to have to take a little break pretty soon, but when we come, when we come back, I'd like to talk to you about those berries that you put on your Facebook page, or I guess that your wife put on your Facebook page. Right. Okay. Good. Okay. We'll talk about which, what kind you have and how many and what you have to do to get all that done. And we'll be back with America's Homegrown Veggie Show right after this. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app. The sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Phil Busman, who's the owner of Cherith Farms. And Phil, right before the break, you were telling us about... Um, you're, you're going to tell us about some of your berries. I saw on your Facebook page that you have made quite a few changes, and you've gotten very big. How is that working out for you? Well, I'm not sure how big we've gotten. We have scaled up for our operation considerably. Um, we we started up. We want to do. Uh, we we like to do a lot of berries, and for one thing, we love consuming our own berries, and. Part of our CSA model is we we sell what we eat. Uh, there's not a thing that we do not uh, sell that we do not eat ourselves and enjoy ourselves. So one of the things that we uh, wanted to do was create a berry patch uh, for our CSA customers. Now these are in addition to the normal basket charge, um, but we selected uh, three types of berries. We've got thornless blackberries. Uh, red and yellow raspberries and um, blueberries. So, um, and, and of course, they will ripen at different times of the season and be available for people. When they come to pick up their crops, um, it wouldn't take long for someone to pick a quart of blackberries in particular, uh, a little longer to pick the raspberries, uh, and about the same time to pick the blueberries. So, um, what we've decided to do was create three larger beds of each um, type of plant. Um, the first, uh, our first task was to select the blackberries, and I'm standing 
we've purchased about 28 um, thornless and, I might add, a few thorn varieties uh, from Ison down uh, near between Newton and Griffin uh, Nursery. Um, some of the some of the berries, uh, blackberries, have uh, really taken off. I'm standing next to one that I put in as a six-inch whip, and it is now past my knee. Uh, it's got blossoms on it, um, so it will most likely flower this year. What we did is we um, plowed up a 45-foot, two 45-foot rows, about 36 inches wide, and we spaced the plants every three feet to give a lot of room. Um, in between it. We, um, we then uh, manured it heavily with rabbit manure and sheep manure and chicken manure, um, strawed it and weeded it, and um, as, a, as a general rule of thumb, they're looking very, very good. We do not anticipate getting a lot of berries from them this year, but hope to in, in the coming year. Um, one of the reasons we selected thornless blackberries is that right behind me we have the remnants of four plants that I picked up from the Georgia Organics uh, fruit and vegetable sale about five years ago. And we put these four blackberry plants in, four, di- four different types, actually, four different species, um, mostly named after Indians, Indian tribes. And we basically ignored these things. There's honeysuckle growing over them. There's a big um, um, privet hanging over two of them. And what we have found is that these blackberries, even under the worst conditions, have provided large bags of uh, blackberries that we were able to put in the freezer. So we thought right off the bat, if we could put 40 plants in a really good location and tend to them, they could most likely serve as a good berry supply for us and our customers. So is this going to be a pick-your-own, or you're going to be picking them for you, for the customers? Most of our customers are able to pick their own, so I would say we'll probably have them come to the back and pick their own. Um, the the thornless blackberries are so easy to pick, though. It, it's a it's not a bad task to do, uh, especially at the, at the end of the day or early in the morning. You come out and just check, check animals, check the garden before you go to bed. You can quickly pick um, what you need to for the day or uh, to keep things picked off. Blackberries are definitely one of the things that I think beginning growers, if, if they want to grow fruit, should try blackberries and, in most part to the country, blueberries. Because the blackberries yeah. here, we have wild blackberries that just come up in the fence rows. The birds plant them, and I don't tend to them. They don't get watered. They don't get fertilized. They get nothing. And all the neighborhood kids like to come and pick the berries on the outside of the fence. And my husband and I pick the ones on the inside of the fence, and it works out great. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. If I was to start a garden and have anything in my yard, I would put in a few thornless blackberry plants the first thing, first day I moved in. Um, because four plants can give you, like I said, a lot of berries for the year. Um, and, and they need no, there, I don't know of any diseases that hit blackberries. Just, well, there are a few, but they're, they're but they're not not very common. Um, there are some yeah. rusts and things like that. And one of the things some of our listeners might be thinking, oh, we've tried thornless blackberries and they t- don't have any taste. Well, that was certainly true of many of the earlier cultivars that came out. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned the ones with the Indian names, and they've been breeding. Uh, blackberries that have the flavor of a thorny blackberry but without the thorns and they've come yeah. pretty darn close now I, I i wouldn't be able to tell the difference in some of the new cultivars 
Yeah, yeah. And just for fun, I actually picked up a couple of the old thorn thorn varieties just to do uh-huh. a taste comparison myself. And I was told I get to pick those, um, but my dear wife. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're they already plants. So they are. I don't blame her for letting you pick. Now, tell me about the raspberries. You said you have yellow and red. I assume one of the reds is a heritage. Yep. Uh, same same um, same uh, sale. Uh, Georgia Organics. Fruit and free sale, fruit and fruit vegetable tree sale back, again, about five years ago. We picked up some heritage raspberries, and we picked up some uh, some Anne, A-N-N-E raspberries, which are yellow berries um, that actually hold together very, very well, um, far better than the red ones. And, um, we again, we put these things in in a spot where they just needed to move. We were, they were wonderful producers, um, but they kept growing and pushing out and pushing out. So when we finished with the blackberries, the next task was to move raspberries. And same type of thing. We dug a, we took our plow, went through stones and rocks and everything else imaginable and plowed up a three foot wide strip. And I went and dug up, um, canes. You know, from all of our sets where we did not want them, and spread them out. And I think I, I, one, the count I had was 125 combined canes. I, I, I packed them in really tight because I did not know that uh, most of them would survive. But I'm standing here looking at them right now in, in the wind, and it's uh, it is amazing that they are. Uh, the reds are all headed out. I've got five or six or eight berries on the on the tip of every of every um, stem that has popped out. And my yellows, oh wow, they're really loaded. Um, so we are actually going to have berries this year off of stems that looked um, there again. They're about six inches high when I put them in the ground. I snipped them all off, but I had incredibly good root stock um, that had developed on all these berries. Um, we have them in a good spot, and we same thing. We manured them heavily. We put straw over them, and then those rascally chickens came and uh, came through them every night. And I thought at first, I thought, "Whoa, boy, they're going to dig them all up when they do their raking of their with their back feet." And uh, you know what's interesting is that they probably helped these raspberries get started because they added, you know, some a little bit of nitrogen. They added some aeration to the soil, and um, I don't think and they, they keep the weeds out. down too. They keep the weeds down, and I don't think they kicked out a single plant. So it is really amazing. Um, this is a real home run. I think I paid five dollars a piece for those raspberry plants. So my investment was less than forty dollars. And if I had purchased all of those berries new today, it'd been well over six hundred dollars just in raw cost uh, to get them here. And again, I uh, I told someone just last night uh, a new um, a new homeowner. I said, let me supply your raspberries for your new garden. It's because it's very simple. They're going to be digged. I, I already noticed uh, a lot of them growing up down by the road near a garden site that could very easily be starters for another another family um, next year. That's really cool. You're not just spreading the food around, but the knowledge and the, and the plants to do it with. For those of yeah. uh, those of our listeners that are here in the south, we can very often get two crops of berries. Up north, um, the heritage only puts out one crop usually. Now, Phil, how do you manage yours? Do you cut them down to the ground once they've fruited, or do you go in there and 
cut them individually? Oh, you know, that is a really good question, Daryl, because I have been a very poor manager of raspberries. Um, that is one reason why we uh, we decided to start fresh with a brand-new bed and, um, and, and do a little book learning and talk to people. But based on what I'm looking at right now, I would just very easily cut every cane back because I am going to be loaded with berries on this this year. Um, and I know different people do it different ways, and you can take the old wood out. Um, but um, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I got one that's almost hip high, and it's covered with berries. So that is, that is really a surprise. My berries aren't doing nearly that well because we've got too much shade now. But back when I had a lot of sunlight, what I would do with my heritage raspberries is I would cut half of them down in the spring and the half of them down after the fall crop. And so idea. I got, I could keep them kind of under control, you know, because they right. they get just uh-huh. so huge and, and they tangle and they they root everywhere a stem um, touches the ground, which is great for propagating, you know, new plants. But it's terrible for trying to get in there and pick. I don't think they make a thornless raspberry. If they do, I haven't seen it. I want to put a link to our Facebook page to a University of Georgia publication on growing berries, um, including how to prune blackberries and raspberries for people that are, are interested in doing that. Now, with your blackberries, are you trellising them, or are you just going to let them flop? Um, right now, the plants admit let them flop. Um, I did get by the varieties that um, are freestanding, if you will, that are... Um, um, they're not, they're not the, the erect black, yeah, this is erect yeah, yeah. blackberries versus the trailing blackberries. I found that they they flop over too, and then of course they root, and you have, and I ended up with a tangle too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're going to let them uh, stand up and, um, and and do their thing. Um, the um, I just lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> I hear your dog barking in the background. Does that mean that you have a visitor? Uh, we actually have two visitors who just showed up, yes. yes. Ah, okay. Well, perhaps they would like to talk to us. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes before, about a minute and a half before the break, but tell us about your blueberries. You mentioned that you put in new blueberries, too. Yeah, the blueberries are for... Um, the blueberries are for... Um, we added 12 blueberry plants... And they are, and my dog I just discovered yesterday, um, have, uh, in barking at the sheep, has managed to trample over one of the brand new ones, and uh, looks like it will have to be replaced. So, again, you cannot be too careful with a dog around the place. Um, but we added, uh, we took out a couple large, large lower petal that were right along the edge of our, uh, our new garden shed area. This is part of our permaculture changes that we've made. And the um, so we added ten new blueberry plants. Um, the reason we chose this site is that we have three blueberry plants that are in this site already that are just tremendously uh, doing well as from for bearing. So we've got five or six different varieties in this uh, in this entire row of about fifteen plants now. And again, it's right next to our garden shed. So when people come by to pick up their vegetables. Very easy to go through, pick up quarted black, uh, blueberries, add them to your, your mix. Again, it's only two or three, maybe four weeks of the summer. It's not a lot of additional charge for any given customer, um, but it's easy revenue um, in that sense for us yeah. uh, to help spread our cost around. 
We have to take a little break right now, but we'll be back right after this. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app. The sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. This week I'm talking to Phil Busman, who is the owner of Cherith Farms, and which is a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture. And we've been talking about some of the changes that Phil and his wife have made to their garden. And most of that, it sounds like, involved putting in the berries so that you can make some, some money without having to do a lot of stoop labor. Oh, um, I wish that was only the work we did. Um, that was that was the January work. Um, we, uh, the berries were pretty much done by January. Uh, both both, in fact, all three uh, beds—the uh, blueberries and the blackberries and the raspberries—were all done in, in the month of January. Um, what we have changed a lot was um, was our, I guess, our permaculture, for lack of a better term. Um, in, in, in two major ways. First, um, we uh, we remodeled a, uh, a shed that was on the build uh, in the building. It's actually part of a rental property that the renter had been using. But I told him I wanted it back for our gar- garden business um, starting around Christmas time. Well, it's amazing how many people have never even seen this shed until we remodeled it. Um, I have a buddy that made um, barn doors out of recycled barn wood that I've been storing in my barn for 25 years. They're oak doors. There are sliding doors, so when they open, they open uh, they open wide, so a lot of people can come in at one time. And we have uh, the building about 20 feet long, about 12 feet wide, and when the doors are wide open, you can look straight through because we both purchased a window about 6 feet wide that goes straight to the back and look straight out to the barn and through a plum tree. So... Um, what we needed to do was to change from that front porch, cozy little atmosphere for about 12 people to a more manageable space for about 23 customers at any given time. And, and um, so this remodeling project of this shed took a lot of time. Now, Joel Salatin, who I would not describe as a great gardener by any means, but as a wonderful farmer, would tell you that you can sometimes spend way too much time and energy on a permanent structure. He's a guy who believes in a lot of temporary stuff because you can you can move it, you can change it. You're not you're not bound to it. In this case, we needed to have a home, if you will, a place to put a refrigerator for people who pick up late, um, a place for freezer. We actually moved our egg operation down to the to the little shed, so the eggs no longer go up to the house and then back on Saturday mornings to the shed. So. That was job number one, but it took a tremendous amount of time, and I'm I'm paying for that now. We did employ a contractor to help us with this, um, but it, it took the better part of eight days, and as a result, my garden suffered 
during those eight days, particularly while I was still working full-time. There was a lot of weed encroachment and activity in the garden that happened. Um, but that all being said, the shed is a wonderful addition, and, uh, and, and we're able to put other things in it now as well. Um, Maybe you can take a picture of those wonderful doors and send it to us, and I'll put it up on the Facebook page. Oh, I will. I will. The doors are, are, are one in a million. I've had more people say, I want a set of doors like that. And I said, you can never have because they're custom built, and they're they're from an old barn on Bethany Road up here in Alpharetta uh, that was torn down a long time ago. So, um, you, you brought up quite a number of good points, Phil, for those that might be thinking about doing this in their own yard or as a retirement project or something like that, there are always changes, aren't there? There are always changes. Every, every And everything you do is very intentional. Uh, one of the people I'm following a lot right now is a guy named Jean Martin Fortier. And uh, JM, as he calls himself, is a farmer in southern Quebec. He farms, um, he produces $130,000 worth of vegetables on an acre and a half every year in southern Quebec. He's an extremely efficient individual, has wonderful soil and land, but has, um, has taught me a lot. And I, I kind of stumbled on him almost by accident. He wrote a book called The Market Gardener. And one of the seed companies I use, High Mowing Seeds, is in northern Vermont. And they did a little spot on him on the uh, on their blog site. I, I clicked on it and realized that I was doing almost everything that Fortier was doing, with the exception of of um, some of the equipment he had to make his life easier. So when I started embracing more and more of what he did, I realized that there was a big payout coming for some equipment. Um, so we um, invested quite a bit of money into a walking tractor system, and the walking tractors are built by BCS, which is an Italian manufacturer of walking tractors. Um, walking tractors are about 26 manufacturers of walking tractors active in Europe. There are none in the United States. The closest we you might see is a Gravely. Um, but when we added this equipment, it meant that all of our gardens had to change. Now, we added a large garden, which I refer to as our hill garden, and over a considerable amount of research and time, I oriented my beds on a, in a, a, a perfectly east-west access. So they're, they're not exactly lined up with fences that we have now, which means fences have to change. Um, but it, right now, it is working out very well. And along with that process was organize the garden into an eight-year rotation. Um, now, the tricky part is figuring out is, is holding to the plant. But uh, this particular gardener, 48, um, believes in having heavy crops, heavy feeders, and then light feeders. And he likes, he groups all of his light feeders as greens and roots. So greens and roots might be lettuces and beets and carrots and, and kale and chard, um, mustard greens and collards. Anything that qualifies as a green, basically, they're light feeders, so they do not have to be – they can live on last year's leftover from the heavy feeders, such as the cucumbers and squash and the peppers and the tomatoes and the garlic and the onions um, and the brassica. So um, we, we have been very busy with that, and in, this is the first year that I've been doing this garden, and I am already seeing results that uh, 
that are going to pay off for us in the long run. But, again, this is a lot of planning and infrastructure work. Um, <clears throat> so when you're... Um when you when you've done all these changes, did you do the research first, or did you just kind of jump in? And and when you started, did you kind of jump in with both feet, or had you spent a lot of time researching it first? You know, um, I, I did a lot of research, and the uh, the eight year rotation thing really really had me befuddled for a while because this this particular fellow follows a ten year. I said, there's no way I can do ten, um, but I like the eight year. Because what it allows you to do, you could already be thinking, all right, next year I'm going to do, I'll, I'll give you an example. We, we love Hakurai turnips. They're a Japanese salad turnip. Um, I can already see from what I planted this year for 20-some customers that I can cut back on the size of the bed. Okay, so next year when I do my rotation, or even this fall when I do my rotation for Hakurai turnips, I'll allocate even less space than I did this spring. Um, same, same being said for, um, almost everything I'm growing right now. I can see that I got to add more here, more there. And so, in, in, in what's nice about this rotation system is it gives you an idea to start thinking about the next year or the next season before it's even, before it's even there. The next year I know where my tomatoes and peppers are going. I already know they're going to that bed. So if there's anything I want to do that bed special, I do it the year ahead of time. Um, but that all being said, at a certain point, you just have to jump in and go. So, um, and that's, you know, so you're always, you're paying a little bit of catch up. You do the best plan you can, but at certain points, there's certain times you have to do work. Um, I tell people every year that uh, January and February are often our biggest, busiest months in the gardens. When the, when the rain stops and the ground is workable, you've got to be in it working. You just have to work it then. Because you don't always have that opportunity in June and May when it's hot like this. Yeah, and for for people that have clay soil, you have to be extremely careful when you work it. Because if you work it when it's too wet, it turns into bricks. Yes. Now, are yes. you going to be doing cover crops in, in your rotation? I am so doing cover crops. Um, one of the things that has um, uh, really hamstrung me a little bit this year is I, I did... I did in my eight plot at my hill garden, um, plot number seven is actually squash and cucumbers, okay? So I knew I wasn't planting those until May. All right, so what I did is after I got those beds formed in February, I put down clover and oats. And uh, those two beds had oats that were almost as high as my head. Um, I then took my, one of my new pieces of equipment and I mowed it down with a flail mower. And then what the flail mower does is chops all those oats and clover into very fine little pieces and lays it down over the garden bed. I didn't do anything else to it until I got ready to plant. Then I walked through with my broad fork. Um, I'm a big believer in a broad fork. I actually sent you that picture. I don't know if you got it or not. Um, and the broad fork basically goes down through the soil about eight or nine inches and keeps the soil layers intact. Um, I broad fork, then I throw in rabbit manure, and then I come back through with my power harrow, which is another BCS-supplied implement that runs off my BCS tractor. And what the power harrow does is it stirs the soil. It doesn't till it. It doesn't turn it over. It just stirs the soil. And you can you get various depths. You can go, I go about two inches. So basically, I just turn everything in, all that green manure 
and all of the uh, rabbit manure. I just turn it into the soil. It lays it out flat with a roller on the back, and I'm ready to plant. It is amazing what a cover crop can do to keep that soil fresh and active and easily work. In contrast, in contrast, there are several rows in my new garden that I just said, nah, I'll just leave it open. I'll be planting tomatoes soon. I'll be planting beans over there soon. I'll be doing this soon. I'll be doing this. And soon never came. And soon caught up with me because um, now I have been using my hoe and we taken off weeds. And I'll end up retilling it and everything else. But if that was cover crop, I would be so much ahead of the game. And I would expend so much less labor. So I have big plans for cover crops. Um, I, I am I am such a buyer on that now um, that um, I'll be a real advocate for it. That is a really good tip for people, even if they're not going to do a really big garden, even if you have a small garden, don't leave a space vacant because Mother Earth says a vacant space is a place to grow a weed. And yeah, if you keep a crop on it, you know, the, the weeds don't have a chance to get started. Yeah. I, I'm pretty convinced that uh, people always say, well, how big is your garden? How big? My grandpa had a bigger garden. My uncle had a bigger garden. Da, 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 da. I just, okay, whatever. And I, it doesn't bother me anymore. It just doesn't. Because your grandpa probably didn't farm it. He did, probably didn't get three crops off it every year like I do. I, I plan on three crops minimum off of every square foot of land that I have. So my little garden all of a sudden is three times bigger. And um, and, I, and they use it that way. And I think it's the best use for the property and the best use for garden. It's a lot easier to garden when you're gardening three crops a year because the amount of weeds that you get after two years is virtually none because you're always tilling up the soil. You're always looking down. You're... You've got time then to pull out that stray piece of Bermuda that snuck in. And you've got time to grab the hunt end bit before it gets out of, out of, out of control, the chickweed. Um, but when you just have one crop a year, ah, you might, hey, I don't want to start until after Memorial Day. Or I don't want to, I want to be done by Labor Day. And all of a sudden you've got nine months where that thing is just sitting and getting hard with the rain and not building up. So, um, if I was to do any, any advice, along with the blackberries, to a new gardener, it would be start small and turn it three times because you'll be, you'll be so much so much happier in your garden experience. We have and, to uh, take a little break right now, but we'll be back talking more about what, new, what things new gardeners need to know right after this. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app. The sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Phil Bussman, the owner of Cherith Farms, 
And we're talking right before the break. We were talking about some things that new, new gardeners or even old gardeners need to know um, to make their life easier, and that is to get uh, several crops off of one piece of ground and cover crop. And a lot of our listeners, of course, are up in the north, and they think, well, they can't garden and get three crops out. But if you time things right, it's amazing how much you can get out of a little tiny garden. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, It's very key. Um, And some of the crops are incredibly easy to grow. Some obviously take a lot more time. Um, I've discovered this this spring with um, with an early onset of this really hot weather we had about a week ago that my cauliflower just did not hold up and uh, wouldn't make it. And so I made the decision this morning to take what what is there and pull out everything else because I've got I've got to get some other crops in uh, for the summer that will be more beneficial rather than waiting for four cauliflower and tying up a whole row, a whole 75-foot row. Um, you make decisions about what needs to go and win and cut your losses. Yeah, and people don't, I think a lot of people, especially new gardeners, don't realize how how quickly some things can crop, like radishes. You, you've got your harvesting in a month or less. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you plant it at the right time, and the right time for radishes is very early and very late. What else do you plant very early? You mentioned the cauliflower. And do you do a yeah. spring and a fall crop of turnips? Oh, absolutely. I might even try a summer crop. Um, uh, we do a lot of – turnips are one of my favorites. Um, they're a, very easy to grow, for one thing. They, they germinate wonderfully. Um, the greens are um, are very good. We do a variety of, uh, of turnips I mentioned earlier called hakurai, which is a Japanese salad turnip. You can eat it raw. The tops are absolutely magnificent. So you can saute it, the tops, with the, with the small ones. We harvest them in all different sizes. We start harvesting when the, the size of my thumb, uh, which means you have the best top with a really small um, uh, a bulb, a turnip, if you will. And then we end with, with, uh, with turnips that are about this, uh, almost two inches in diameter. So the tops are pretty much been spent, but the bottom is um, the root is very, very tasty yet. And you can eat it raw, like I said, with dip or hummus, um, or you can just dice it and put it in your salad. Uh, the wonderful. We also do a French heirloom variety, um, which is looks like a club when you pull it out of the ground when it's fully formed. They're about six inches long. They, they kind of look like an old axe head uh, or a club. Um, wonderful tops and, and do very well. Um, we do the purple tops in the Golden Globes in the fall where they can sit in the ground and mature over a period of time. I can, I can pull them as late as December. I can pull them in February if I want to, um, so they overwinter very well. So we don't do those as much in the spring. Um, we do a lot of mustard greens. Um, I'm backing off on mustard greens a little bit. Some of my customers don't like them as much. Um, but when you saute greens, you can throw them in, and they taste great. I always tell people if they eat a lot of hamburgers, you take a mustard green leaf and use that, as, and you'll, uh, you'll want another one because it's, uh, it's a wonderful way to consume mustard greens. Um, oh, I never thought about that. I'm not oh, very fond yeah. of mustard green myself, except that I grow the giant red mustard as an ornamental some years. Yeah, it's great I'm, I'm put- containers. It's great, you know, along with um, pansies or something like that. If if you live in an area where you can have um, very late fall and early spring um, cool season plants, 
I can, and I guess our folks out in the Pacific Northwest could probably grow it, grow it in the summer, and sure. have that as as a part of their flower bed too, because it's it's mm-hmm. a great background. Mm-hmm. So, what other um, greens are you growing? Oh, what other greens are we growing? We did. I just harvested off the radishes uh, last week. Uh, we do about four or five different types of radishes. Um, we do. I love beets. Again, we we sell what we eat, <laughs> so I love beets. Um, I plant about seven different varieties every year, and uh, three or four usually do well. Um, I had a nice surprise in looking at the garden last night. The beets are looking really good right now. Didn't quite get the germination that I wanted um, because I planted um, on my birthday, on March 2nd, and it was supposed to rain the next day and the next four days to really get everything nice soaked up, and it didn't rain for like five. So... um, Part of my permaculture changes is getting more reliable water when I need it, um, and I, uh, that's definitely one of the things we're, we're still working on. But we do beets, carrots, we do pecan radishes. Uh, we do wonderful, wonderful lettuce. I've got a, a buddy that helps uh, start those um, for me in the 128-pack. Uh, Very easy, and, and we, I plant lettuces that are about a, the size of a quarter, and they're so hardy. You can plant it. It can walk right through a 27-degree night. Um, it might slow it down a little bit, but it, it rarely dies. And uh, there are so many different uh, lettuce varieties now. They're just stunning in the greens and the reds and the, and the curly leaves that we have. Um, I can vouch for your lettuce. It is wonderful you can vouch. lettuce. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Phil, yeah. Phil, for our listeners, Phil gifted me a, uh, some lettuce and broccoli, and yesterday or day before he brought over a leek. I have to figure out what to do with a leek. I think I'm going to make leek and potato soup. There so I get go. to try some yeah. of these things, too. Yeah, yeah. What um, are you looking at when you look out at your garden right now? What are you seeing? What am I seeing? I am seeing, uh, I'm seeing some little white butterflies, Cheryl. <laughs> um, but most of the broccoli is gone and the cauliflower is all gone, so I think I'm okay for a while. Um, I'm looking at a wonderful row of kale. I've got, uh, baits, rip boar, um, uh, red Russian, lachinato, which is a dinosaur skin kale, a whole 75 foot row of that. I've got Swiss chard, uh, the bright light Swiss chard, which Interestingly enough, I had some overwinter that had gotten too thick. When I went to uh, thin it this spring, I said, why don't I just space it out at 12 inches and see what it does? And it has responded wonderfully. I have another variety of, of chard, which is a light green Italian variety called Lucullus, L-U-C-U-L-L-U-S, which is just gorgeous to look at. Um, I'm looking at the remnants of some mizuna and some red rain mustard, um, I'm looking at uh, some squash. It's just getting ready to, to pop up. I'm looking at my row of turnips with more lettuce behind it. I'm walking backward and seeing the last of my mustard greens and some collards that have really headed up nicely. And then I'm looking at a row of onions and potatoes, red fingerling potatoes and Yukon gold. Uh, the potatoes are actually in bed, plot number five, which will turn into a 75-foot row of garlic uh, this fall. And then I'm looking at a row of onions and leeks, and then backing up a whole row of spinach where the, and the radish, and then the uh, then another row of greens and roots, and then a row of tomatoes, and then a row of Romanescu and early Jersey Wake, Wakefield cabbage and late flat Dutch cabbage, which is forming nice heads. Then a yeah, row how are you going to keep the cabbage worms out of it? 
Uh, you know, um, I might use some of Captain Jack's little girl on, you know, that little spray, that, that mm-hmm. um, organic spray. That's worked really well for me in the past. And uh, I'm not so concerned about the, well, the cauliflower's gone. But, uh, yeah, I need to probably hit those with a little bit of Captain Jack's. Um, BT still works in most parts of the country, and that's okay. another way. Um, yeah. And BT has the advantage of Captain De- Captain Jack's dead bug brew will kill beneficial insects as well as oh, the cabbage okay. loopers, and the, so I prefer to use BT in this in the when I can. Uh, it right. only controls caterpillars. So that's, you know, one drawback of it. But the advantage of is if you have beneficial insects around, you don't have to worry about them. Uh, and right, especially right. when, if you're growing some to save seed or to attract pollinators and letting it, letting it flower, that's really important on that. And I don't, you know, it's kind of tricky in a lot of parts of the country to grow cabbages. Um, because of the because of the cabbage worms, and in some parts of the country now, the BT is becoming ineffective because so oh, much of it was used in in the genetically modified corn. Yeah, I personally per, uh, per, would rather grow cabbages in the fall because mm-hmm. by the time they're really doing their thing, um, you've got some nice frost coming on, and then the impact of the worms is much much less in the fall um, with with very little attention. In fact, I can usually catch the, fly, the, the butterflies with my uh, with my garden net, my butterfly net, if I'm if I'm real careful and nimble. So, well, um, that's a that's a that's a good way to do it. Now, you grow a lot of tomatoes. How do your customers like the heirlooms? My customers love the heirlooms. I, I have customers that uh, I have spoiled for life, or we have spoiled for life since you start so many of them for me. Um, and this year, I'm being much more intentional about where I'm planting them and what kind of yield I'm getting from each variety. Actually, I have a German Johnson already that I picked up at a feed store early, early, early that's showing blight. And I'm thinking I need to just pull that rascal right out of there and not, yep. uh, not worry about it. Now, yeah, your I, I would definitely pull it. That's one of the drawbacks of planting too early. You mm-hmm. Gardeners really need to watch the weather, look at the long-range forecast, and you know the Cornell University even has a blight forecast for the country so that you can wow. look there. But if you plant a plant that loves heat and needs heat to grow quickly, like a, like a tomato or a pepper, um, they and, and it sits around in cold soil, especially cold and wet, um, like it's been, they're much more subject to disease than a plant that's healthy and actively growing. Now, so, in your professional opinion, if I pull that tomato out, could I plant another tomato in that space, or am I risking uh, just a return of one? I would, I would plant something other than a tomato or something in that okay. family there. Um, okay. Maybe stick a squash in or something like that, or something that could run between the rows maybe. Because, mm-hmm. of course, without seeing what you, what you have and what kind of blight you have, um, it's, it's a little bit difficult to say. But most of the, the tomato diseases are such that most of them are carried in the soil, and then they get they infect the plant by splashing up. So that's a problem. Right, right. We've got about a minute and a half here. Do you have um, any advice for somebody that wants to do this? Any resources um, that you'd direct them to? Yeah, yeah I love the Elliot Coleman books. Um, he, he's a classic, of course. Um, his, his latest disciple I mentioned earlier, John Martin Fortier, the market gardener, um, really has some really, really good ideas. But now, again, 
his, a lot of his methods are based on a little larger production. So if you're doing something for your home, there's things you can take from there, certainly. Um, I like the idea of permanent beds. I, I do, and I like the idea of tilling yet. Um, I'm not a no-till guy. Um, I think the proper tillage, the proper use of manures and green cover crops um, keeps soil fresh and moving. Um, so there, there's, there's just one reason I wanted to, to retire when I did, and I'm blessed to be able to do this at 59, is that there's so much in this world of growing in science that I want to learn and master or at least become more familiar with that uh, it's going to take uh, it's going to take me 16 or 17 years to, uh, to get my fill of it. So there's a lot of that all. <laughs> I've, yeah, been gar- well. I've been gardening for more than 60, and I, I, I'm still learning things new every day. Yeah, and that's the wonderful part about gardening, isn't it? Uh, it just yeah. is. There's so many things you can learn and uh, go. So um, I would say lessons more for anybody starting out, but uh, uh, and, and practice, practice, practice. Work on technique. Yep. So if you want to get bigger and, and have a small CSA, figure out what you can grow first and what grows well for you, and then add a few more things, and then uh, – and then take baby steps. Off you go. Okay. Thanks so much for being with us today, Phil. Um, That's all the time we have for today on America's Homegrown Veggie Show, but we'll be back talking more gardening next week. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.